Good evening and welcome everybody uh, to another episode of the Edge of Futures podcast. We are well into 2023 now. Uh, depends when you're listening. You might be listening in the future uh, because we are obviously about Edge of Futurists. But 2023, sometime in February, um, it's good to see you boys. Uh, I was away last week, but it's uh, it's nice to be back. It's good to see you. Are you well? Yeah, all good. I think Steve's, Steve's muted himself. Yeah, I'm just waiting for you to speak. I'll come in. I've just been polite, Dan. <laughs> join, join in. Come and join us. We, uh, good. I had, we were saying that we kind of hit, ended up in bed, not together, clearly. <laughs> uh, you're in you're in London, but uh, about the same time. So I think you were half one into into London, and I was half one back home from from Ireland. So uh, I've got through the day on coffee today, but uh, it's been a good week. Been a busy week. A lot of driving and. A lot of mileage and a lot of uh, uh, God knows how many counties in in Ireland yesterday, but it's been good. It's been good. I had a wonderful nice. event yesterday, and Ireland is so much open to more um, conversation around digital transformation um, and and the investment, obviously, from the EU is helping. Um, yeah. So yeah, it's good. Good. It's really it's, it's interesting, isn't it? Looking at um, countries around the world, we talk about this offline quite a lot. This idea that. Um, we're rallying against or rallying in the education system in England, but it's not the same. Even on our same island, it's not the same in Wales. Just about just abandoned this idea of having uh, an inspection body. Estin's going uh, like huge changes there. Scotland and its and its work around digital transformation. He's saying there, Ireland just across the just across the water, not part not a part of our country. I know, but like things are different aren't they these countries that are um experimenting and trying different things and considering that education doesn't need to stay the way it's always been so so yeah exciting i saw some of your uh your stuff on socials yesterday it sound, looked exciting about all the stuff that you're doing in ireland and and dan you, you you look like you're having fun i know you've got some some interesting things going on and and, and uh you've been uh speaking yeah, everywhere and doing loads of stuff aren't you yeah um just sat in a travel lodge at the minute with the, the nice artwork on the wall. Uh, <laughs> yeah, no, it's good. In London, uh, yeah, uh, keynoting at the uh, London Grid for Learning conference tomorrow, which should be good, all around uh, AI and, and generative AI. So excited for our conversation today around that. Yeah, yeah, bus- busy times, but uh, yeah, but all good. And, 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 we're, and we're gearing up, aren't we, for our uh, Edufuturist event on the 4th of May. Lots of, uh, lots of cool stuff happening there. Fantastic to announce um, that we've got our headline sponsor signing up who are going to be joining us and going to be um, headlining, partnering with us for the event. And we've got lots of award partners that are going to be sponsoring as we celebrate some of the the winners, the people that are making a difference um, in education from uh, around the UK and beyond as well. So and this next few weeks, we're going to be making some announcements about some special guests that we're going to be joining. And our face-to-face, it's been a while since we've had face-to-face but we're looking forward to being together in Leeds um, on the 4th of May. So if you haven't booked your tickets for that, go to uprising.edgefuturist.com and do that. We'll we'll mention that and we'll put that in uh, in our show notes, but make sure you, you head over to uprising.edgefuturist.com and join us on the 4th of May in Leeds. So, gents, it's... Uh, it's probably a good time now to bring in a guest who's waiting very, very patiently in the background. And um, tonight we are really, really pleased to be joined by someone who's been in this world longer than us. Uh, I won't, I won't ask him how long, but he's been in this world and certainly in this world around AI and the development of technology and education. Um, 
And so it's, we're really pleased to welcome uh, Donald Clark. So, Don, thanks for thanks for joining us. No problem. Pleasure to be here. Yeah, thank you. So, for for m- most people will uh, who listen to this podcast will have heard of you, have seen your books, will f- will be following you on Twitter probably. Um, I wonder if you could just give for those people who who, who the, the one or two people probably mum who listens who doesn't follow you on Twitter, um, uh, just give us a little bit of an insight into you and in, in your background. Okay, I'll miss out all the bad bits. <laughs> it's weird giving biographies because you, you you're very self-aware that you're just saying the good bits you know but the uh yeah so i've been around all my adult life really been in the learning technology game came into it by accident i did a degree and then did a postgraduate in philosophy so it was unemployable uh and, and it, but uh, by accident got i was in london and met you guys and we got into business and this is way back in the, ne- the middle of the 1980s this is a long time ago which was computer-based training, the very first PCs, first Apples, and all that sort of stuff. And that was quite a successful business, and uh, it became one of the biggest sort of, you know, you know, sort of leading e-learning companies in the UK. Uh, float, I floated that in, in the late 90s, and then sold it in 2005. And then been involved in other builds of edtech companies, uh, and uh, as a director of Learning Pro, we sold that in 2021 for 200 million. That was the biggest deal, and uh, I think in the, you know in that, in that year certainly that was massive. You know, they're in workplace learning, not in education and schools. So you might not have heard of them. And then, uh, but really, my focus over the last well, really six years has been on AI only. So I, 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 I you know, I'm, I'm in the tech business, and you're always looking ahead to see what's next. And I was absolutely convinced then that AI would be the technology of the age. I think it is. Every single major tech company on the planet is really an AI company. You know, all, all, all the big ones, that's their strategy. I, I wrote a book, as you rightly said, called AI, Artificial Intelligence for Learning. During COVID, I got my head down and wrote three books, and that was one of them. And then I was giving talks on this way back 2016 and so, and everyone going, yeah, yeah, Donald, yeah, 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 another fad, but actually it suddenly exploded. But it's been there for a long time. You know, we've been using Google for 20 years, which is really based on PageRank, a little Bayesian prediction engine. And I mean, that's really AI, Google Scholar, whatever. All your social media is mediated by AI. Your Netflix, Prime, it's all mediated by AI. We live in a cloud AI. It's just been invisible. As Donald Norman rightly says, good tech tends to be invisible. But suddenly, uh, the generative that we had been working with, with uh, GPT, from the, from the very early releases in 2018-19, really, so knew what was coming because it was so powerful. Uh, but suddenly it's landed in everybody's laps, isn't it? It's like there on the table, it's there on your screen, you can use it. It didn't surprise me that it shot through the roof because if you give amazing technology to the hands of just ordinary people and they start using it and they go, wow, they type something in. And that's it's a visceral reaction, really. And it, I remember it happened with me, you know, when the internet came along, you, really, you guys are probably too young to remember all of this, the excitement of the early days, but it was, wow, you know, remember Google Earth, just clicking on it and going, zooming in down onto the earth and going to a little town in Scotland where I was brought up, a little mining village, you know, it blew my mind. And I, and I think the 100 million that got on a chat GDP, that's what happened to them, really. You know, it's 100 million in two months because it blew people's mind. And... Uh, and this is not going away, you know, this is just the beginning. This is like an embryonic uh, large language model. One, and it's only even one little species, a slither of AI. So, you know, I'd, however you want to play it today, but I'm, I'm sort of, 
I'm pleased because I, I think this is transformative in a in a good way, you know. And I, I'm always looking for the social benefits and the social good. It, it sort of depresses me sometimes going on to Twitter. I know you see, you know, every man, woman, dog <laughs> is got a setting up an ethical AI committee or something, you know. To, and it's not really ethics. It's really just people who are determined to find what's wrong with it. <laughs> you know, it, it's a relentless search for the bad. That's actually not ethics at all. Ethics is actually a, a consideration of social good, both good and bad. So they, they use the word ethics, but it's not really ethics. It's more sort of thinly disguised, I don't like this stuff. And let's look for the bad bits, you know? And you, you see that with, I've seen that all my life, really. I saw it with the internet. I remember seeing it with email, believe it or not, in academia. And then, you know, you saw it with social media, big time, you know, screen time, games, any bit of tech that comes along. There is, but you, they go through five stages of grief with it, you know, but eventually we come out the other end and go, wow, that is really quite interesting. And then we just use it. It's like your washing machine. It's just there and you start using it. So that's where we are now. So hopefully I could go into a load of sort of bullshit about, you know, details of my other things I've done and so on. But for the AI stuff, that's, I, you know, that's I, I, I'm interested. You made, you made a big thing at the start about the bad stuff in the bio. I want to know what, what, what what's the bad stuff done? Well, the bad stuff, <laughs> <laughs> well, you don't I mean, have to answer that. We can move I, on. I'll tell you an amusing anecdote. <laughs> so I, got, I did a podcast with a, a woman in the States, and I've lived in the States, and I studied in the States. So I know the culture quite well, and it's quite it's it's quite different, really. You know, they're very intolerant of swearing, for example. You know, and I'm from Scotland. I, I quite often, you know, swear without actually realising it. But she asked me to give she asked, she asked I said to her, I, 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 she said, oh, give me something. Give me the truth, she said, about your background. You know, get, uh, you know, the unvarnished truth. So I started off with my experiences with drugs, and she went, "Hold it, stop right there." <laughs> <laughs> but, I mean, let's be honest. Like most most adults have taken drugs at one point in their life, surely. And uh, but this was that was immediately beyond the pale. So she reversed the car out of that request, <laughs> and we drove back at it, and I gave the normal the normal bio. <laughs> uh, that's brilliant. Yeah. Well, you, you you talk about being unemployable with a philosophy degree. Try having a degree in theology. <laughs> Preach uh, that. Preach that, brother. Preach that. <laughs> um, it's interesting, like what you're saying there, because even even like the 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 co-founders of of OpenAI over the last few weeks, I think Sam Altman was quoted as saying ChatGPT is a terrible product, and and Greg Brockman came out and said that this time next year we're going to look back on on ChatGPT as antiquated and quaint. Where where do you? I suppose as someone who's been in this space for the last few years, is one more year really going to make such a big difference in this world? And and where do you see it going over that next year? Yeah, well, the Sam Altman stuff's interesting. Sam Altman's an interesting guy because I think people underestimate him. He, when he was 19, he raised 20 million. You know, this guy's a serial entrepreneur. He just knows the tech world. And this is all PR-led, really, you know, because you had Musk coming in with the 1 billion at the beginning, and then you had Microsoft with the 1 billion. But they, they kept a, a not what's called a technically a capped not-for-profit, which means that the 1 million from Microsoft, well, it means that they can make some money as well, keeping that entrepreneurial spirit going, I think that's fine. But the 1 million deal with Microsoft was quite cute. Sorry, one billion. I mean, imagine raising one billion and say it's not going to be exclusive <laughs> with Microsoft because <laughs> that's almost impossible. A friend of mine did a, was involved in a massive deal selling Minecraft to Microsoft, and believe me, they had no option. I mean, he's now an amazingly wealthy man, but they 
you know, Microsoft don't often do that. So they, they, they don't have exclusivity and go out. And, and I've been watching Sam Altman. He, he drops those little very quotable lines into the market. But remember, Sam's sitting there as the CEO, and he can raise X billion within 10 minutes. X billion. They're at the billion level. And uh, have people crawling all over them because the potential is so phenomenal. So with only one and two billion investment, they're now what? They're probably 40, 50 billion minimum value today. Now, where is it going? Nobody really knows. But of what, uh, there are a few things I think we can be almost certain. One is that large language models, uh, you know, with this number of parameters, what happened was it hit a threshold of 10 to the power 22. Suddenly, the number of parameters just allowed this thing to be amazingly good, amazingly quickly. So I'd been using the earlier GPT software, uh, not, not even chat GPT. So chat GPT is based on chat uh, on GTP 3.5. That's the big parameter model, 175 billion. It suddenly just dog-legged up. And even the people in AI were astonished at how good this thing was. It just com comes back with this well-structured, very fluent prose on almost anything you ask it. And so it took everyone aback. But actually, it, this was true of all the other models. If you, if you know the field well, there's a, you know, quite a big range of LLMs, these large language models. And they all hit that threshold and went through the roof. So one, it's not just about chat GPT. There are other big language models out there that are just going to be as good. But where is it going? I think it's quite clear now that, so there's some limitations to large language models. One is provenance. In other words, I ask it a question, it comes back with an answer, but I don't know what, where it got that answer from. Now that's, if you're in a school or you're teaching kids in a university, well, that, that could be a problem, you know? You, you, I, I want to know, it's not a truth engine, so it will make mistakes. Now, that provenance is a real problem there. And, and generally, I, common sense is the other big problem. You know, it doesn't, it's not, it doesn't know anything, you know, it doesn't, it literally knows shit, you know, it knows nothing about anything. It's just a piece of software that spits out words one by one based on this amazing probability model that like, these parameters are the weightings between words. So you can go into a lot of detail in that, but that's all it's doing, spitting out words on a probability basis. The, where's it going? I think it's going towards these models actually working in tandem as an ensemble or suite of software. So if you want to solve the provenance problem, well, Google Citations is sitting there. And so look at these companies. You know, Google is sitting there, and they've, they've sort of biding their time a little bit here, quite rightly, because of all the companies on the planet, they do have Google Earth. They've got Google itself, the world's most famous and best search engine. They have Google Scholar. Uh, there are companies who are, uh, uh, you know, they buy YouTube, <laughs> you know, they've got all this stuff. And these are all different forms of search. So you'll see people bringing things in. Now, it's actually quite a tricky, tricky technical problem to get these things to work with each other. But there are big teams. They're almost all in the US, by the way. The, the amazing, uh, you know, the interesting, I was listening to your intro thing here, is that I think we have to be honest and say, the action is not in Europe. <laughs> the action is actually in the US. Uh, and that's because the US developed quite a clever post-war model, I think, which I'm a big fan of. Uh, Vannemar Bush was the guy who, and a guy called Engelbart there, who promoted it. And they got government, uh, government higher education or university, high-end research people, really, and academia and private business all working in tandem. And that's what makes the Amer America sing for me on this stuff. It doesn't surprise me that all of this is coming out of the US. 
you know, because they're not, they don't have that big anti-corporate thing. Oh, he works in the private sector. You know, he's a, he's an evil demon. <laughs> a view from academia. You know, they, they, they tend to work better together, I think, on these things. But uh, to finish off and answer that question, you're starting to look at very sophisticated models, not simple APIs between them, but how they communicate with each other, these models. Some interesting stuff at Stanford about using the prompts themselves and also uh, well, specifically in chat GPT for, for it to communicate using text to the other models and then returning text. But people are looking at all sorts of ways to skin this cat technically, but that will happen. You already had the integration with Microsoft. They knew what they were doing. They, they, they put it into Teams almost immediately. Now that they had obviously been doing that for some time. So the integration issue is being solved as we speak. And there are other big players here who haven't made a move. So this is only going to get better, folks. You know, let, 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 you know, people can snipe at chat GTP. Oh, it made a mistake on the maths or something. But that's like that's the that, the simple addition of a calculator would solve that problem, or or technically what's called a solver. And that's that's going to be solved, obviously. You know. So suddenly the thing. It was a very interesting incident last week. Uh, I know I know you follow this uh, follow some of this stuff, Dan. This they put the Singapore sort of. Primary to secondary school exam through Chat GPT, and uh, it did okay. And then, but it did not so good in some of the maths questions. Quite a tough little exam, actually. And then he tried it a week later, and it was a lot better. It got all the maths questions right. So remember, the fundamental thing about AI is the parameters are not changing in Chat GPT. So that parameter set is the same. It's been trained. It was trained with humans as well, which a lot of people don't know. There's human training in that one, but it does actually get slightly better the more that people use it. And you've had 100 million people using it. So you can see yeah. how this will go. The sheer scale of the thing, it's not so much the scale of the people using it, but number of parameters will be interesting because that's suddenly on, on GPT-4 is going to go an order of magnitude bigger. I mean, billions bigger. Mm. If that goes up to 500 billion, who knows what's going to happen? That might really, truly blow people's mind. But it's not just the number of parameters, it's all the other things you do with the other pieces of software in this ensemble approach. Sorry, that was a really long, long-winded answer <laughs> to that question, but it's complicated. <laughs> no, I did notice that, um, I think I asked it about an author, because I wanted, I, wanted I wanted a summary on, on a certain book a few weeks ago, and I asked it, I said, and the first question I asked was, do you know who this author is? And it came back and said, I don't know who this is. And I thought, oh, okay, fair enough. And so I didn't do that. And then I think it was two nights ago, I asked it the same question. Yeah. And I don't know why I did it. I just I just did it. And it knew exactly who the author was. It it gave me a summary of their their, their bio. And I thought, bloody hell, it's actually it's, yeah. it's somewhere someone must have typed it in or some I don't know what's how it's I think it was, I think another interesting feature on top of that, I know that you you looked at that, Dan, is the People quite often, I know you've been doing this, how to prompt properly type stuff, but people completely got this wrong. They thought it was a sort of truth engine like Google. So they yeah. take a prompt and then get an answer. Of course, it's called chat GTP. The first four letters are a bit of a, <laughs> a, bit of a clue here yeah, <laughs> because it is a chatbot, unlike GTP, the original one. So, and then if you learn how to prompt properly and it's, you know, it, it having used a lot of these tools in the past, it's a, there was somebody had a very nice line which I'll copy from Twitter. It said, it's a bit like somebody from another planet arrived out of one of these little spaceships and knocked on your door and you're speaking to like a, an alien 
and it speaks really good, well-structured English, but it's a little wee bit odd. <laughs> and so what you've got to do is learn how to communicate with it. You know, language is a communication thing. It's not representation ideas, Chomsky keeps telling us. It's a communications tool. But once you, once you learn how to do it properly and understand that it's a dialogue machine and that the number of things you ask it, because remember, it doesn't know anything. There's no consciousness. There's no comprehension. It's competent without comprehension. Once you realize that, you can prompt so much better. And so, you know, I, I, I'll be doing a whole lot of stuff all around the world, you know, on, on, on this thing. But I'm quite keen to get out and we'll put together a sort of workshop, you know, with, with a proper, like, this is how you should be prompting. Yeah. I actually think that problem might disappear eventually as the technology gets better. A number of people are saying... I, well, I was just going to say that because I, I think, like you said there, I've, I've invested a lot of time recently in, in how, like, a model for prompting. But it's always at the back of my mind that at some point, you know, a bit like how Google search comes up and says, did you mean this? At some yeah. point, it's going to be able to figure out what you actually mean and, and be able to yeah. almost using that probability model when that gets better and better, almost virgin on, I mean, it's not reading your mind, but it'll pro it, I'm sure it'll, it'll feel like it sometimes. Well, I, I was, I was just about to, to say, obviously, with with the Neuralink stuff that that, uh, that Elon Musk working on, actually, maybe it it will be able to anyway in terms in terms of get that idea of an understanding of what you intended as opposed to just what you've what you've said, uh, and 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 that's that's quite interesting in terms of intention and and, and the idea as as things growing and you're saying there around um, the the wording of, of of questions and prompts that you put into. Uh, to, to programs like this or to 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 software like this it's interesting that from my perspective that from a from a teaching perspective we've always had this idea that it's it's about the quality of your questions and so actually if you if you don't ask good questions then you don't get strong answers from from students and if you ask a question that do, you haven't made it clear what you're expecting of them you're going to get a very very different answer and i suppose actually the 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 irony of around all the people that are saying let's not this needs to be banned in schools and uh turn it in have just put in some 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 new some new um uh made announcement aren't they that saying that the uh they they can prove 97.5% or 98% that it's uh, it's been written by chat gpt or whatever else and and i think everybody's trying to think oh this is going to this is this is really dangerous for schools but actually in this in the same way that we teach young people how to communicate effectively on a written exam paper or whatever else. Actually, you're trying to get them to communicate effectively with this kind of AI tool, aren't we? So it's, it's, a, it's a, we're developing that communication like you're talking about, Don. It's this idea that yeah. um, I know you've used the phrase, Dan. Actually, that the conversation with AI now is is a is a is a literacy challenge, and actually, we're talking about developing literacy through um, through through using these kind of tools. Yeah, I remember when Wikipedia came out, it was the same debates, really. And uh, the truth of the matter, I was involved in a Wikipedia project. It was a big research project. And what we did is we checked the web servers of academics. And actually, they were using Wikipedia just as much as the students, even though they had banned it in their own university and banned students from using it. And of course, this is going to be, this is true of all technologies. So there's a lot of hubris around this, you know. And so I, I posed an interesting thought experiment on Twitter last week, which was, Imagine every teacher and every lecturer on the planet had to submit all their own teaching materials and all their own PowerPoints through a plagiarism checker. Would they do it? Damn right they would. Now, every single conference I've went to, I can spot unattributed slides, rip off stuff all the time. And of course, 
we all do this as human beings, you know. And so Wikipedia came out. What did kids do? They went to Wikipedia because it was well-structured. They knew how to find stuff. It's a really brilliant tool. It's got hyperlinks. And they cut and paste, but they're smart. So they paraphrase it because they, they know that you as a teacher. But that's an act of learning. You know, you, don't, you can't paraphrase stuff without actually just picking it up. It's what Tolman called latent learning. You know, by doing it, you'll, you'll be learning that stuff. And so that, people call it cut and paste, but it's not really. And uh, the sim it's similar with this tool as well. Actually, I've learned, you know, I use it, like I'm writing a fourth book. I use it all the time at the moment. I've, I used, I've been using these tools forever. And I use Wikipedia and I use Google Scholar. I use anything I can get my hands on to find out what I need to know. So I think it's no, it's no surprise, of course, that to be fair to people who are, you know, teachers who have to handle the, you know, the, the, the administrative side of marking and also assessment, you know, they have to work this through. But this is a big challenge. I think what's more interesting about this is the way it's challenged the model, really. We just can't go on. Like, higher education is the worst possible. You know, it's not really lectures and essays. You know, it's always been a sort of ridiculous form of assessment. You know, it, if you go into your final exams in philosophy, as I did, every single student just memorized a whole lot of really good essays. We churned them out because you cannot write. If you've ever written a book, if you've ever written anything, you know that you're not going to write it perfectly, start and top left, finish bottom right after four pages. You cut, you paste, you think, you rewrite, you rub out, you change the order of sentences. So by definition, you're not going to get good critical thinking when people do one of those invigilated exams. It was never true. And it's got worse now because, you know, my idea of this wasn't so true because it was a very small number of people, 10% went to university. But I know middle-class parents who write essays for their kids at universities. And they openly will tell you that. And I say, absolutely not. It blows my mind that you would do that. My, my, my parents could never have done it, you know, but they didn't go there. But And then kids swap essays, you know, they've been doing that for as long as higher education has been in existence. They've been using essay mills for decades. You know, that's true. And that, that's a big dark secret because if the university admits that that were the case, then the whole reputation thing is up for grabs. So hardly any academic wants to go down that route because it's traumatic for them, the student, and the reputation. So the whole thing has been rotten from the core for quite a long time, really. And setting an essay is a very lazy form of assessment. Of course, it's assuming that every everybody in the world is doing a humanities degree and, and writes essays, of course. <laughs> and, and I always hate this, you know, because actually... It's the same in the workplace. You know, all the people who write about it assume that everybody works in Zoom in an office. And I know you guys come from a, a you know further education background and nothing could be further from the truth. <laughs> and uh, it seems as though most of the population have been, have been suddenly put, an, an invisibility cloak has been put, as if nobody works in the real world, as if we all sat during COVID and food magically appeared at our doors, ambulances picked us up, the infrastructure was kept going, but we, the people who really mattered were the people on Zoom. <laughs> Give me a break, you know. And uh, I, I think this is where this will maybe shine a light on, you may call the a sort of industrial essay complex, you know, higher education. Just kids spending five, six, seven years just writing essays. Well, the madness of this, we're drowning in a sea of text. You've know, got third-rate research, the bottom of the pyramid. I mean, I'd, I'd, I'd spent a lot of time doing research. Some of it is terrible. You wonder why some of these journals exist. But of course, it's deeply embedded as a practice now. And where are all the skill shortages? Practical jobs, nurse, walk out your door. 
you know, the skill shortages are practical skills, and we robbed vocational learning. We ripped it out, ripped the heart out of it. And all these kids are being parked up in universities doing yet another degree, master's, whatever it is. And we've got job vacancies and every possible practical skill on the planet. So I'm hoping that this will maybe help rebalance that. You know, there was a, a lot of bullshit talked about 21st century skills, for example. That was just really middle class people going, everybody should be like us. You know, because we've got we, we're critical thinkers because we've got a degree. <laughs> Are you kidding me? It's a process of four years of absolute conformity. Have you ever written an essay that disagrees with the political views of the person who's marking the essay? Try it and see what mark you get. <laughs> you learn you learn in your first year never to do this. So I think I think we'll have some I think there's some big issues, social issues, educational issues, practical issues. And of course the big one is the way with the workplace will change. In what way will this technology really, you know, change roles, change jobs, and so on? Because people didn't people didn't give much of a toss when working class people lost their jobs. But suddenly, if there's any threat to middle management, all hell breaks loose. It's front page news, you know, and that's and people are going, maybe it's, oh, maybe these 21st century skills are right. This chat GTP thing seems to do this, doesn't it? It seems mm. to be quite good at that. Maybe my job, maybe I'm the person who sits on Zoom all day. Maybe I'm the one that's most at threat here. That's what's worrying people. It's a different set of ethical issues now. I was reflecting on that uh, last week, actually, about how automation has been taking working-class jobs since, well, for decades and decades now. Yeah. But now that it's starting to infringe upon middle-class jobs and, and white-collar jobs, now it's now it's a serious problem. And now and now people are, are, are thinking, we have to ban it. We have to, it's not, we, ha we have to put this back in the box Um and it, it is interesting that whole kind of that element of what what's going to be vital for the workplace because we we know like there's a few if you type into Google um, hire an AI employee there's a there's a there's a website that a company that's popped up in the last few months where you can go on and hire an AI employee now um, and and that's just going to become more and more widespread and then as the as the as the cost of the subscription model um, starts to starts to fall you're going to you're going to it's going to be a no brainer for a company so what's what's the human going to bring to the table when ai can can do a lot of the 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 kind of mundane desk well that's right i think i think you hit the nail on the head there i think it's interesting if you focus on employability or employment for a moment it will almost i mean you can you can clearly see the 100 million people have used that that it produces really good text so if your job is writing sort of middling reports <laughs> or emailing people and so on or you're in marketing and that's what all you do is you write prompts and so all that sort of stuff and yeah you, you know you got to worry about this because it's coming after you like tomorrow the interesting thing is that physical jobs you know there's a very good book that i really love by uh, david goodhart called uh, called head hearts and hand and he, he does a lot of detailed analysis on this so we've recorded everybody who has a you know we, we reward people with degrees who have got head jobs knowledge uh, you know the knowledge uh, market and then we completely those who've got heart like social care what care workers and so on and nurses or people who do work with their hands the heart and the hands people they don't get paid well They've been ignored. In fact, even worse than that, we sort of look down on them a little bit. They're the people who voted Brexit that we should ignore because they're totally deluded type thing. So there's been a lot of that sort of, you know, that weird graduate class grabbing it all. And But the physical jobs are not going to be replaced by AI because the robotics thing that everybody thought was AI at one point 
turned out not to actually work. <laughs> so you can automate the spraying of a car in a car factory, but you cannot automate a waiter bringing you four pints of beer to your table, uh, avoiding other drunk people in the bar. <laughs> it's not going to happen in my lifetime even. Uh, so the physical side of this thing, and so you get lots of this nonsense at educational conferences. I've had sometimes had to be, I was, I was in Portugal. I got introduced by a, onto the stage by a little robot, you know? Look, what are you doing? This robot, what I'm doing is nothing to do. It's about Google, it's about online stuff. You're not going to have robot teachers. Robot teachers are the dumbest idea ever. You, you will only have real teachers because they have common sense and they're real people. Uh, having, a, having a robot teacher is a bit like buying a Tesla, a, a, a self-driving car, and then buying a robot to go into the self-driving car. No, no, you don't need a robot. You have a self-driving car. <laughs> yeah. And so it, 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 it's a dumbass idea. And, of course, most of these robots are just really crap bits of plastic with a really bad chatbot inside, you know? You don't need the plastic, guys. You know, you, you, it doesn't have to look like something. So It's interesting, though, like, if you know when you look at what uh, Boston Dynamics are doing with with their their kind of agile robots, and, and, I, and I very much see kind of chat GPT, whatever that will become, um, is almost like the the consciousness or the the brain that could and, and if you if you brought a, a Boston Dynamics robot and ChatGPT brain and merged them, what my goodness, what what are we gonna have on our hands? There? Yeah, well, I think if if we come back to the sort of teaching and learning thing for a moment, I think something interesting happened in my life. Since I've been involved in a lot of delivery of stuff, you know, in, in learning over the years, what actually happened was the first big the MOOC and Salmon Khan did this first. You know, if you, I've taught mathematics before. I don't know if you've ever taught maths. It's really, nobody wants to learn it. It's really hard to teach. It's really hard to learn. And, you know, the mathematics Taliban, I always refer to, who want everybody to learn. You know, you're teaching kids in further education, something like SIRDs. <laughs> Even mathematicians don't use SIRDs. You know, well, what am I, why am I teaching these kids this stuff? It's going to be of no use to them whatsoever. They're going to be hairdressers or whatever, you know. This ridiculous demand on a GCSE curriculum. It's changed slightly because of the functional maths thing, which is good. But an interesting thing happened on online delivery there, and they found this out, uh, that actually the head on the screen is a bad thing. You don't need the head. Actually, what you need to do, Salman Khan did this first, is if you're teaching maths and you're showing how to multiply two fractions, you invert one, multiply, do the thing. Show them the maths. Let them focus wholly on how to learn the maths because the maths is really hard. If you've got this stupid little talking head on the side, it's a complete and utter distraction because it's just more cognitive overload. They've just got to deal with more distraction and noise on the screen. Now, then the first big MOOC I did was an AI, uh, Sebastian Thrun, and he got rid of his face as well, just had a hand doing the maths because it, it was all algorithms and maths. And that was brilliant. I didn't need to see... Sebastian Thun's face, you know, it's, it's adding nothing to the mathematics at all. Now, this is different from a classroom, remember. Entirely different dynamic when you've got one and many and you've got behavioral issues and all sorts of things to deal with. But we're learning very quickly that, that, that the robot teacher of the face, you know, in, in a lot of subjects, you don't, it's actually quite good sometimes to get a little bit of the social thing, like I'm a professional physicist or teacher, to intro the thing, but then get down to the meat and get down to the stuff and then come back out. Television, we don't sit and watch talking heads looking at us as we're doing now for eight or nine hours a row in an evening. There's a very good reason for that. We get bored shitless and we'd go to our bed about six o'clock. <laughs> and yet educators seem to think that talking heads are the bee's knees, you know, lecturing is the bee's knees. No, 40% of students don't even turn up for lectures. 
even at Harvard, where you're paying 100,000 dollars a year. So we we have to take, you know, most of the stuff I've written has been about taking what we know from the research and applying it pedagogically using the technology. You always have to look at the pedagogy of the learning stuff first and then use the technology clever on the cleverly on the back of it. The problem is we're copying a lot of bad, bad pedagogy. So most most in higher education, most of the money spent on recording lectures. Well, that's that's okay because students need to be able to have a second bite of the cherry, use it for revision. English is your second language. You may have been ill that day. All those good reasons. It makes no sense not to record lectures. Although some people still don't. You know, my son has a degree in AI. They never recorded a single lecture in the whole four years. It's absurd. Imagine if I was a, you know, it's like, it's like, oh, I've, I've, I've written this book. Okay, I've written my book on AI and learning. I'm going to stand and read it to you. I'm not going to put it in a book form. No, no, you better sit and listen. Take notes, by the way, but I'm not going to publish it in a book. Imagine a journalist saying, I'm not going to, oh, I've written this piece, but I'm just going to tell you, I'm not going to actually put it in a newspaper. But that's how stupid lecturing without recording is. It's the most dumbass idea imaginable because almost everything in the history of the psychology learning says you need to practice. You need two or three bites at a cherry to re even remember anything, you know, in terms of reinforcement and getting stuff from short to long-term memory. So I think we're looking at this technology of copying good pedagogy, not bad pedagogy. And that's why the robot teacher always blows my mind. You know, go, why would you do that? You know, <laughs> except maybe, you know, I could see maybe, you know, maybe solutions to autism or very young children and storytelling. There's probably a few niche examples there, but... I don't think it, it has much purchase elsewhere. I went off on one there on robot teachers. <laughs> I think Steve's turned into a robot. He, <laughs> <laughs> but but, but, he's, but he's, the batteries are not, are not charged, Steve. <laughs> I, I'm just listening. I, I, I find it fascinating. Uh, yeah, I... I'm not going to con come in and contribute just yet. I, 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 yeah, I'm just listening away. I, 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 I do love it watching Steve because you can see, mm, like, whereas me, I'm always like wanting to jump in, and, and I can see just you thinking. But as I'm as I'm listening to you, to, to, to you, Don, and, and I think what we're talking about here is um, something that we've been you've been you've been talking about a long time but and we've been talking about for the duration of the podcast which is this idea that we it's learning first it's about actually how how do people learn how do how different age groups learn do people learn differently and we're not talking about that that silly idea around learning styles but this idea of that we have the the idea that as we're, as we're talking about learning we've got to find ways in in a in a world that is um that is is evolving really fast and with there's tools there that we that that we should use but it's learning first and and i think that that's the that's the the danger i think because when when we're talking about some of these people that are or, or that that are trying to perpetuate a status quo the the the, the challenge is that we, we've almost feel like we've arrived and if we maintain what we've got hmm. um that's going to keep us in work it's going to keep going to keep things simple but it, it, it's unavoidable. Uh, it's here. It's it, this isn't the future. AI isn't the future yeah. of education. This is this is this is here, isn't it? Yeah. Well, I think so. If we leap forward and think, you know, how can we use it cleverly? I think there is something though. You know, people say, oh, I, I, I get, I've had that a lot of conferences. People say, oh, it's not about the technology; it's about the learning, and that's true. 
you have to always consider the learning as a necessary condition for success, but it's not sufficient because sometimes the technology comes in and really just changes the pedagogy, you know, almost by accident. Google, Google did that, you know. Google suddenly, nobody had thought about using Google, and a good one is podcasting, you know, podcasts. Now, teachers were not, weren't using recordings of themselves in any sense whatsoever, you know, and the interesting thing is how the assistive technology, the Royal National Society of Blind talking books, that was all just an assistive technology in it originally, text, speech, speech to text. They really advanced it all. Suddenly, out of nowhere, really, it, it happened on YouTube. It was a sort of fashionable thing. The Joe Rogan thing went through the roof. Uh, Pierce and all these sort of people, you know, it was that sort of counterculture type thing. And now everybody's listening to podcasts. But that was a bit of technology that came at us. That wasn't driven by pedagogy. But still today, people are not using podcasts with students. And you, you go wonder, why do they have to? You know, there are hundreds of millions of people listening to podcasts. People clearly enjoy them. And they're quite long. You know, people say, oh, you have to keep everything in micro bits. You know, we have to get learning down to 30 seconds. Of, oh, yeah. And then suddenly people are listening to Joe Rogan for two and a half hours, Lex Friedman or whatever, you know, and then there are hundreds of millions. And yet the ed people in education are going, oh, no, 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 that's no use. It's too long. Yeah. Well, no, no, no. There's a bit, there's sometimes a bit, te the technology sometimes shows us the way as well. It's more sometimes a bit of dialectic between the technology and learning, you know, that we have to listen to as well. Because if you just rely on people and reflecting on pedagogy, I don't think any reflection on pedagogy takes place in higher education and education departments. I genuinely don't think it does because it hasn't changed in 300 years. It's exactly the same now as when I went to university, if anything worse, because there's several you hundred... You got to university 300 years ago, Don. <laughs> yeah. No, I did write a book, though, called Learning Technology, which I had to go back and look at all this stuff and do the research on, on it all. But the lecture has been rock solid for, I mean, Plato did lectures in the academy and that was two and a half thousand years ago. Uh, so I think sometimes, the th but I, I think there's a real way ahead coming back to the AI thing for a, mo a moment then on the back of your question there. I think, I think personalized learning is really important. Adaptive and personalized learning. And so I worked on a big project here and we, we got $2 million from the Gates Foundation they're, they get a lot of stick, but I think they're pretty good, actually. They're quite focused on what they're doing. And we built an adaptive learning system that's brilliant. And we went into uh, Arizona State University. It was for 101 courses. You know, you know how you get kids at the beginning and further education, and their maths and writing is really terrible, and you have to get them up to a reasonable minimum standard. That's fair. The 101 entry stuff. It's really hard getting everybody up to that level. And they have the same problem in American universities. People fail the first writing course, stats course, and maths course. You know, the one-on-one -on -one course they fail, and that's them. They're out because they have massive dropout in the States. And this stuff worked like a dream. And what it, what it did was, let's take maths as an example. If you're working through maths and you do your multiplying fractions and you're, and you're getting up, up the ladder and you hit algebra, which is where people really get screwed up, then a, a bit like the sat-nav in your car, the AI thing on the side is going, okay, Ben, you're struggling with this very simple operation in algebra. I'm going to stop you. I'm not going to let you fail catastrophically. I'm going to keep at it until you get this point, that X is a variable and blah, blah, blah. And then it gets you over that little gap, as it were, and then you move on to the next thing. And, and maths is one of those areas where you just, if you fail catastrophically, that's it, game over. Now, if you're, it's really difficult teaching 30 kid, kids in a maths class at once because you have no idea what's going on in their heads individually. It's impossible. It's too much of a, it's too much of a task. 
but the software can do it quite well now. Not only not only can it diagnose uh, what's gone wrong when you try something, because it already has built into the model the typical things you do wrong when you're, let's say, adding two double-digit numbers. There's about three, it's surprisingly about something like a dozen to 15 ways you can do it wrong. <laughs> and uh, teachers can't spot that amongst 30 kids, but the software can. So I think we'll see the emergence of AI-driven... What's happening is AI is not replacing teachers, but it's eating into some of the tasks that teachers would like to do but can't when they've got lots of learners. And so the history of learning technology is really the history of technology just taking little bites out of what teachers used to do. But that's a good thing because it leaves teachers to teach. And my big appeal to the teaching profession would be to start you know, using this stuff because you can't complain about workload and then say, well, I'm not going to automate the workload. <laughs> it doesn't make any sense. You know, you, you know, like, why don't you automate the things you don't like doing, like marking? I've yet to meet a teacher who enjoys Christmas Eve with a pile of essays or whatever, or the holidays. Why don't we ease the burden on marking? Now, you could, you could automate all homework and all marking easily. The technology has been there for ages. In fact, the, the smart AI stuff would allow you. So, we, you know, we built a system. It's, I think, a welfare that creates the online automatically from a teacher's uh, PowerPoint or, or even a document. And as open input questions, almost all ed tech is really crap multiple choice questions written really badly. And I think we have to get out of that groove. So, you know, you can have open input now and the AI will recognize what the student has typed in as an answer. Now, teachers do that in a classroom. All, you don't stand up in front of a classroom and deliver multiple choice questions at people. It would be madness. It would look odd, feel odd. Nobody in the real world ever uses a multiple choice option ever. And yet it's endemic in online learning. Why is that? What's the only thing that crappy HTML software deals with? Now we have AI where I can actually create open input for you. Say, well, you know, what do you think? You know, tell me, can you do this? And you really do have to recall it because the answer isn't sitting there on the screen for you to guess at. And not only that, as you type it in, I can then semantically analyze the answer you gave me. And, you know, you can use synonyms. You know, if it was like, I've got to examine this, it can be, I have to inspect, it would be okay. If the number was 2020, it could be 2020, or in words, 2020, or two with a comma, and, and then the, the thousands after it. it. It can do all that, you know? We know the tech can do that. But we shoot this stuff down before it's had a chance to take, to get any sort of escape velocity, you know, and into schools. Or we do the Oak Academy thing is just do flat HTML, like video stuff or whatever, you know, and uh, which is about like 20 years out of date in terms of pedagogy. So, yeah. It's, a, it's an interesting one. I think, um, I think I currently I'm liking it. I like the disruption it's causing. Disruption, I think the the positive impact it's having um, to enhance, to engage, to enable learning, those kind of terminologies. I remember mm. my first role in ed tech in, in, in college was technology enhanced learning manager. Loved it. Tell manager, loved it. Enhancing learning, the pedagogy side of the wall and leave the, all the tech stuff to, to the right people. I'm a PE teacher originally. And so this was where it's at. But I was, I was, I was driving yesterday and I was, um, 
And I was just thinking to myself in terms of what will cause the biggest disruption. I think AI right now is, is starting to enhance and doing the support stuff. And I think the great stuff is, 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 is it's been going on for years, but I think it's been put to the forefront. Um, but I'm, what I'm really excited about is what comes after disruption. I'm not sure what will cause a disruption. And I think maybe it'll be a different sector that doesn't exist that will cause consequences for the current whole schema and the whole process of education from primary, secondary, tertiary, and then and degrees and everything that currently exists. Because, and I was thinking about it when I was driving. The reason I was thinking about it, I was a Tesla passman. I'm thinking the disruption that that caused the car industry was so, so significant that none of the other large players saw it coming. And I remember, I can't remember we had on, and I don't know if it was a conversation even off the podcast, somebody saying, imagine sitting in that boardroom of Ford or General Motors or Mercedes or somewhere going, how on earth to the CEO going, how on earth did you let this happen? How did you let that person get the run on electric cars? We should have been doing this. And I think the problem is because, and back to Bob Harrison and the faster horses thing and everything else, we are currently still in that whole thing of faster horses. Yeah, We're not in a true. position right now, and I think I'm really excited for for what's happening. And you and Bob have been at it for since the '80s, like you say, and probably before that. And I'm hoping um, I'm not sitting here in '80s. Sounds like a, a short time ago, but actually, I'm 40 this year, and I was born in the '80s, so it's not that bad. And I'm going to get somewhere. I'm waffling, but I hope it doesn't take that long to see this disruption. I think is what I'm trying to get at, and I think because what I'm really excited is how AI and all of these different things, what they will be capable of and do without the shackles of the current education system of how can it support this approach? How can it support online? How can it do all that kind of thing when that doesn't exist because we're not reshaping it. We've not, we're just trying to pigeonhole it into online learning and teacher at the front and all these things that have existed. And I think there's new things that have come in into education, the online learning sector or something will cause a massive disruption like te Tesla did to the car market and transport that will change education. Don't know what it is. I'm not great at predictions. Definitely not. But me personally, I'm really excited for that because I'm like, what will the art of the possible be when the shackles are off? Yeah. I think. Well, I think, you know, in a funny sort of way, things happen almost invisibly that are revolutionary but seem evolutionary. And I mentioned Google before, but believe me, I think, you know, like I said, you know, why do they not just take six months off every PhD? Because it saves six months of your time walking up and down shelves. Of course, that's because it's an embedded fixed time. And I think there are two things that are happening already, and that's freeing learners from the tyranny of time and location or place. So if you do a PhD now, you can actually do it in the comfort of your own home using Google Scholar. That's the truth of the matter. You know, and that's what almost every PhD student is doing, checked off by your supervisor, of course. So it's changed that forever. But will there be a fundamental shift? Well, there, there could very well be. And there's some interesting things happening here. In America, every year for the last 12 years, enrollment in universities has fallen. Hardly anybody knows about this. I, I don't know why we, we don't know about this, because it's quite a shocking thing when you hear it for the first time. Every single year for the last 12 years, there's been a drop in the number of people going to universities. The cost has gone up, everyone, for those 12 years, by the way. And there is almost $2 trillion of debt, federal debt held by 
the, the American government on the back. This is completely unsustainable. In the meanwhile, the world's falling apart because we have, in our country, 40,000 uh, uh, jobs for nurses. Now, my mother was a nurse, my sister was a nurse. They couldn't be nurses now. They were working-class women, and we made it in a degree subject, one of the dumbest decisions imaginable. But it's not dumb for the graduate class because they want everybody to be like them. But you've cut working-class women out of the jobs game entirely with one decision and policy in the Department of Education, which is populated by largely by these idiot researchers and people who have, who have never actually been at the front coalface of real life. Half of them never had a job even when they were students. They never even had a paper round. They had nothing, you know, other than they're, you know, boom, 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 in an office making decisions about other people. But I think I think I'm a bit pessimistic on this because I, I, I think we're going to get a bit political in this because it's heading in this direction. But I don't think this is a simple dynamic of technology will come in and, and change the system. I think actually it's already happening. And I was involved in a podcast from Ireland earlier today. It was run by a guy called Nigel uh, Payne, and he was there when this happened. When I, I was in America the night before Trump was elected. And at Wharton, this big business school, university, it was where Trump went, actually, with his alma mater. And I put up on my first slide, and uh, he recalled the incident. And I said, listen, I, I, I follow AI, and I'm a real data person. You know, I tend not to listen to opinion on politics. I just follow the data. And I said, it looks from the stuff I've been following that Trump's going to win. And people laughed. The whole room laughed. Because at that time, Hillary was miles ahead. Uh, but, you know, that, and it was horrible the next day. And it was horrible because I'm not a Trump guy at all. It's horrible for everybody, but we're ignoring we're ignoring so, the the social consequences of what we're doing in education. And in England, it's abominable, really. You know, this graduate class taking it all—it's completely out of control. I also, Nigel, I was also predicting Brexit. I said, it's definitely going to happen <laughs> because it's exactly the same thing happened in the U.S. And the red wall thing was predictable. You know, you just can't flood a place with cheap labor or solve the nursing problem by just importing cheap labor after they've poor countries have trained them all and then we just rip them off like slaves or something and employ them in the NHS. If you think that's the solution to a political problem, then you need to be reading some political theory because the consequences of that for those countries, Bulgaria has dropped its population by 20%. 20% of the young people have disappeared where the demographic problems are, are horrible in terms of just looking after old people in those places. It's not solving our problem because we refuse to skill people. We're still pulsing these vast cohorts of people through master's degrees and essay writing. We're ignoring the reality of the world. And I think, and answer your point, or where is it going, Steve? You were saying, I think the social problems are going to get quite bad, quite, you know, quite quickly. Yeah, I mean, before COVID, you saw the Gilets Jaunes in France. It was exactly the same phenomenon. You know, these are the, the non-graduate class are pretty pissed off because their wages are going nowhere. You know, and the financial crisis came along and we rewarded the bankers rather than jailing them. We rewarded them and still sucking them into banks, you know. I go along to L&D conferences and there are people from uh, the ex-Royal Bank of Scotland telling me about diversity or something. Are you kidding me? <laughs> you, almost, you almost destroyed the world. You're going to preach to me about some ethical program you've got internally in your bank. And I, I think I'm a bit pessimistic because I think higher education and schools education is a bit unreformable, to be honest. 
I don't see any evidence that the people inside the system, the or the Department for Education, or the politicians, who are all now the graduate class, are actually really that concerned about changing the, the status quo. Now, your point is well made that this is a bit like, you know, it's a bit like uh, spaghetti pasta. It'll break. It won't bend. <laughs> and it's not bending. So at one point, I think some of this, some of this will break. And you can see, I, I, I think I've given you three examples there. Brexit, Trump, Gilets Jaunes. Look what's happening in Sweden. You know, you suddenly have real, I mean, real Nazis in the government. <laughs> you know, Real Nazis. Uh, same in Italy. So, you know, the... The idea that everything's hunky-dory. I think you, you opened the podcast by saying everything's hunky-dory in Ireland. Well, I'm not convinced. You know, Ireland plays the big neoliberal card, which is we have 10% of corporation tax and we'll attract those big American tech companies, which means we're basically stealing all the tax revenue from other countries. <laughs> That's what it is. Uh, Reed Piketty, he's written a whole book on it called Categories. It, it, you know, so within this beautiful, you know, happy family of what we call the EU, one country is ripping the tax off from the other. Ireland's not in NATO. We have a war in Ukraine. It's not in NATO. It has a defence spend of 0.2% of GDP. There are other countries in Europe not in NATO. And we think we've got this sort of, we're, I mean, we're living in this dream world in Europe, you know, that everything's hunky-dory while Putin is marching towards the borders. We have we completely we completely ignored the working class in this country for so long that they sort of revolted in a sort of a vote that just went, yeah, that, I've had enough here. You know, that enough's enough. The same thing happened in America. The same thing has happened in Sweden. The same thing has happened in Italy. And we're ignoring these social pressures. We're still ignoring them. You know, the Twitterati uh, would have you believe that... Uh, Oh, that's just stupid people. That's just, they're just idiots. They're the, they're the people who are being deluded by fake news on the internet. They're not even on the internet, most of these people. <laughs> they're people I don't see on Twitter. You know, they're not the people saying, I think I should go to Mastodon or something. You know, like, <laughs> you know, like get real. I don't know what world the people live in here, you know. I go back to Scotland every year, you know, and both of my family's my wife's here. It's hardcore working class Scotland. And they just roll their eyes at this stuff. You know, they go, what, what are you playing at? You know, what, you know, all the identity politics stuff. You know, they just roll their eyes constantly. Of course, they're not going on training courses. Never, none of them have ever been at university. They're all running businesses, by the way. You know, plumbers and God knows what else. They're all doing, they're all doing pretty well for themselves, actually, because they're out there, uh, you know, doing real things in the real world. It's disappointing. I'm a bit, a bit pessimist on that in terms of the social change because I think we're still heading in the wrong direction, and I don't. The political parties have all adhered to a centrist position, which is the graduate class position. You know, and the the political party I was in all my adult life has suddenly was representing another group of people. You know, the people who are pretty well off, in fact, and uh, you know, it started with Blair. Let's get everybody to university. You know, he was a public school boy. That was the weakness in his policy. He started the free schools thing off. That's what. That's why you have the academy chains. He didn't believe in vocational learning. Actually, it was the Tories who brought in the apprenticeship system and the levy. And what did we do there? The sector itself made it so complicated, so complicated that not a single teacher in the land understands what the hell it is. True. And uh, the sector did that to themselves because they had a massive pot of money, a massive pot of money, and we're not even spending that pot of money because we started to get a whole lot of people who wanted to, who were so obsessed by 
pedagogic detail that we missed the point here. That actually there are jobs out there. We need to match some of these, you know, the stuff you guys have been doing well in further education for decades. Because it, it it's always been an apprenticeship system of sorts, you know, but do it well. I'm actually a big believer in shorter courses these days, you know, uh, and get people into small businesses uh, rather than, but what we've done is the opposite, you know. Further education, it saddened me when it overnight it became a stepping stone into the degree course. <laughs> Are you kidding me? Is that what FE has been reduced to? A stepping stone into somewhere. And of course, we did all that. And, uh, you know, a lot of colleges now doing tons of kids going through sociology degrees and blah, blah, blah. And they're all hoping to get into some essay writing degree course. Is that what it's about? But we did that, you know, we did that ourselves. We didn't, the sector in a sense did it. And therefore, the reason I think it's unreformable is there isn't enough critical mass in the sector itself, in the DFE, or amongst the politicians who are all, all from the graduate class. And they're all worse than that. They've actually come up through the researcher route. All my local councillors here in Brighton, Labour and Green, are all students who were researchers to politicians and they're all hoping to become MPs and it's a, a, they're terrible, they're absolutely hopeless none of them have worked in any real hardcore jobs before mm. and that's I, I'm, I'm interested to it was, you made a point about you don't think you don't think education will change and, I, and I'm and I kind of agree with you there and, and I know we were saying before we went live I was having a meeting with the Department for Education today and I, and I kind of said this to them, I, I I said that I I don't think that we will change. I don't think we can change, and I think this and all the disruption won't come in something like AI shaking the foundations of the system and the system going, "Oh shit, we need to get our act together here. Let's change and 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 start preparing students for the world properly," because we haven't we 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 haven't taken those opportunities in the past. Why why do we think we're going to take those opportunities now? So. I, and I was kind of saying, and it, and it comes from kind of some of the research we do here at Edufuturists, and and I suppose getting to talking to innovators every week for five years, you, you pick up a sense of some of the some of the weak signals that are going on out there. And one of the things that we we we've kind of we've been looking into is this kind of online private schools. They're starting to emerge. They're starting to they're starting to build schools around problem solving, around communication. Um, and the, and I think we had Gerd Leonard on the podcast a few months ago, The Futurist, and he was saying that he thought that the next conglomerate, the next big Google is actually going to be a private education provider because the world is is going gonna, is gonna to demand it, it's going to need it, really. Um, I, I don't, I'm just interested to hear your thoughts on, because I, I, I really do feel like, and, and this might be, the naivety of of not being in this game as long as you have, Donald. But I feel like we're going to hit a crux at some point in the very, very near future. And I think things like AI are going to make this happen uh, sooner, where where we're going to have a, a real choice, yeah. I think is the word, where, where parents are actually going to start to go. And you see it happening... Like homeschooling, I've never, I've never known homeschooling to be yeah, such a good thing as it is now. Um, and, and I think as parents get more aware, as they start seeing these online schools, actually preparing students for for innovative jobs out there and good jobs, are we going to get to a point where 
essentially a, a kind of the majority or, or at least a sizable percentage of parents out there start going actually the school down the road isn't, isn't for us anymore it's there's, there's another think, alternative it's a really interesting avenue to follow this Dan so a number of things have arisen over the last few years so I don't know if you know James Mannion learning reimagined yeah yeah and I know James quite well and I really like James I didn't go, and he asked me to speak at his conference I didn't go along that because I'm 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 uncomfortable with a lot of middle-class people who think they've got great solutions for poor people. <laughs> and uh, homeschooling's fine. Not if, like my mother and father, you both watch shifts. <laughs> uh, and my great fear, I heard a lot of the rhetoric and I've listened to a lot of the podcasts, and I've sort of a lot of sympathy and a lot of good stuff I learned from there. But there was a fundamental thing that I really started to grate on me, which is you're speaking, you're not speaking to 50% of the population. Homeschooling's easy if you're at home as a parent. <laughs> so it was the same problem coming up again. And then Tom Bennett, who I know well, Scott's guy in the research, it's similar there because a lot of those guys, I, I, I talked at that conference a couple of times, I'm looking at the audience, quite, quite that's a odd bunch of people really, you know, quite private school oriented at one point. And Tom's not at all like that, actually, and he got a lot of stick. He's seen his heart was in the right place. But I've just, I'm, I've sort of avoided joining any of those cliques or groups now because... None of them are addressing the fundamental issue, which is what: how does education reach everybody? Those most in need of education are now further from it than I've ever seen in my lifetime. You know, I was one of the beneficiaries of the university system, came through it, you know, did okay in life. Uh, but that what I did is actually much harder now than it was then, much harder. And I blame that partly on Blair and the, the, the whole this pumping up of the university system and the, the, the crippling of vocational learning and a hundred and one other things. Nevertheless, I'm a bit I'm a bit I'm a bit skeptical that the the real source of inspiration will come from those private school entities. I actually think it will happen if it does happen in the United States and not here. I think the I think Europe's in general a bit lethargic and all this stuff and it's got deeply embedded very old school systems i mean in england especially the the public school the private school system is just unbelievable here the way it just pumps people into government you know without a moment's thought and how you can have a cab cabinet of people from one school it just blows my mind really now to be fair in scotland that was never true because there is no one school there isn't an eaton you know there, there's an even a sort of oxbridge type thing there but America is actually a wee bit more meritocratic, to be honest. And I studied there. I went to university in Edinburgh and in an Ivy League in the States. And I'm, you know, Europeans, you sort of spit on a bit of the American culture thing, but I quite admire it because it, it comes up with the goods. We're all using chat GDP, guys, you know. It didn't, it didn't come from Frankfurt or somewhere, you know. <laughs> uh, and what we're doing is, even in the UK, you know, I just stopped getting involved in big government granted, grant projects because there was no impact people flying all over Europe. I was really senior in Erasmus. I've never seen such, I anything so corrupt in all my life. You know, $28 billion budget flying rich kids around Europe, flying them around in a climate check crisis. The absurdity of this, nobody saw it as absurd because it's their kids, their kids who are doing the flying, not the kids from your college. And, uh, and not the kids from my family. <laughs> They're not going to Paris or Nice or whatever it is. Uh, and you wouldn't believe the amount of money that was spent actually on academics flying around the place in the Erasmus. They were pretending it was for students. Actually, it was mostly academics. And, and the UK got hardly any of that money in, in the end. It was actually a tiny slice. The French were ripping it out big time. 
And so I don't think we realize what's happening behind the scenes here. You know that a lot of this stuff isn't helping. We're not advancing, we're not innovating, but we are in the US and probably in China because we're playing with the stuff, you know? It's the, it's the stuff in podcasts. It's not really happening in schools or we get Oak Academy or something, you know? And I, I think I think we need to waken up. And I, there was a really good report actually that came out today and I don't like either of these guys. And it was written by Tony Blair and uh, Haig, you know, the, 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 the Tony yeah. and it was it was a non-political document it read quite well and they were pointing to a possibility of the UK doubling down on the AI thing because we're we're actually quite good at this DeepMind is really is Google now it's the beating heart of Google and that was an English company Dennis Hassabis is an English guy you know and yet he's not a hero nobody knows who he is even in England you know we know who Katie Price is or whatever but we don't know who Dennis Hassabis is if he was an American he'd be like Elon Musk in fact, what do we think? When I say the word Elon Musk to anybody in England, you know, people start spitting blood. They don't know anything about him. They couldn't name five companies owned by him. And you go, do you understand that he's the guy behind ChatGTP and Tesla, as we mentioned earlier? You know, what, what, what's wrong with you here? Oh, so I didn't like something you said in Twitter. Really? <laughs> but we've all, you know, this utopian expectation that everybody's got to be perfect now, you know, or else they're, or, or if they say something wrong on Twitter, that's them. You write them off. It's the sort of craziness around that that we've got to now is, puzzles me slightly. And I think it's a shame because the positivity that I hear from you guys is great around this. You say, well, you know, we could really go, we could really do something here. But you're going to hit the, we're hit, we, we keep hitting the, hitting the curbside with it all because we're not spending enough on the bigger scale stuff. You know, so DeepMind gets bought for, for 600 and, I think it's 670 million. And actually that company is, itself is probably worth 50 billion alone inside Google. And yet it's all English kids who are in there. It was our, you know, all the technology was grown here through the games industry, which we're quite good at. We're all, we're very good at this techie type stuff. We're more freewheeling than, than a lot of other countries. And we do quite well. I was involved in a, you know, a e-learning company, as I said, learning pool out of Derry in Northern Ireland, and mainly an English company based in Nottingham. We've got a Scottish company, 200 million. That's real jobs. You know, hundreds and hundreds of jobs. We bought an American company on day one, exporting, that whole thing. We're good when we do this, but we don't herald those successes. What we tend to do is get bogged down in over-reflective drama on the ethics of everything. You know, that's, you know, like, you know, another ethics and AI committee. You know, in Scotland set up an AI group and it was called the Ethical AI Group. And it was meant to be leading the country into the future of AI. You go, what are you doing here? You know, what are they? Why, why would you do that? And then they started populating it with a whole load of academics who just wanted to reflect on, you know, the dangers of data, as if students give a toss, you know? As, you know, the Russians are not actually trying to steal a second-year undergraduate's essay on sociology. It doesn't really matter to them, that data. You know, temporary learning data, you know, all that e-portfolio stuff, you know? Like, who wants to carry a rucksack of crap stuff you produced in school into the real world? Nobody does. It's not... Some of this is incredibly benign, and yet we make such a fuss over it all, you know? Make such a fuss over everything uh, on the ethical front that uh, I think we missed the big picture, which is the ethical good we can be doing here. AlphaFold, that came out of London. AlphaFold has saved millions, if not billions, in the future potential research and labs around the folding of proteins, uh, curing cancer, and 101 other things. 
You know, we should be a ticker tape down the street when that thing was released, and hardly anybody knows about it. And I think two really fantastic events happened on November the 30th, 22, which is when chat GTP was released. One million people in five days, 100 million in two months. Five days later, in the States, again, not us, another thing happened on my birthday on the 5th of December. They finally lit the fuse on fusion. They managed to get enough energy out of small pea with some hydrogen in it. I, I would have been, and you know, I'm going, why are people not celebrating this? Now, the, the real people who know about this, if you really dive into it, say, listen, the commercialization of fusion now, we're getting quite certain about it. It looks about the 240s. What's the Paris Accord date? 2050. So we might have emission-free, abundant energy that you cannot weaponize in the 2040s. It's 2023. It's not that far off. Why are we not celebrating that sort of stuff rather than the nitpicking all the time, you know? And nobody, hardly anybody knows about that fusion story. Interestingly, young tech kids do. You know, they like it. They like Musk. They like, they, they, you know, they, they click on this stuff. They're watching Lex Friedman. They're watching Joe Fro Rogan in their hundreds of millions. And yet they're the people that are getting sort of cast aside, you know. And the whole identity politics, they're the group, young, young white men are getting sort of, you know, like, like you're the worst, you're the lowest of the low, mate. There's no intersectionality into you guys. <laughs> you're the enemy. And I think that's the sort of nitpicking we're into now, you know, and I think it's a real shame rather than be, you know, the political views I've held all my life have been we're all in one boat together here. Let's get on with doing some really good social things with government, business, academia, the whole lot. But we, we, we've shattered that. We've thrown it, thrown the plate of glass on the, on the, on the ground and, and and splintered us all into competing groups for some reason. It, it puzzled me slightly. But we're, yeah. I'm getting more yeah. and more pessimistic the more I talk here. I'm talking myself no, down here. No, no. I, 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 by nature, but. <laughs> do, you know, do you know what? I'm listening to this and I'm thinking to myself, it's there's a, there's a, rea there's a reality check because often we, we, we speak to people and we're talking about the hope for this and we really want to do this. And, 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 to, and to be honest, um, there's probably in all of us this this innate, like I say, hope and and desire that for our children and our children's children that they that there will be something that whether it's catastrophic or whether it's revolutionary or whatever else it is that somebody just goes, can we just stop? <laughs> Let's just stop. Uh, and you hear these people saying, stop the world, stop the world, I want to get off. But are we just going to stop and go? The, just because people have got different color skin, just because people have got different. Um, class background just because they've got we're not better than each other I, I i've set up a company called no more human based on a maya angelou um uh quote that talks about that if you see a, a beautiful piece of art and or you hear a, a fantastic piece of music created by chopin realize that um they they created it and no more human no less human than anybody else and i think there's this there's a, the hope is that there are people that are holding on to this this concept of um, we're in this together. We've we, we we've got to think about the the least of these, and we've got to think about people that have got need access to this. We part of the reason why we set up the Edge of Futurist Awards has been around this this idea that it's not just about let's just do let's do a popularity contest. And I know that some people fell out with us when we started doing it because they think it was a popularity contest. It absolutely wasn't. What we want to do is say those people who who are making a difference, those people are helping uh, and doing things that have real impact and. And we and we do things about well-being. We do things about um, pe people who 
who are getting about equitable access to stuff. And w- w- some of the people that we've had on very recently, the guys from Yia and and and, and Kidato, they're really trying to to those people right in the in poverty slums in in places where education and technology isn't available they're trying to make this available so th- we hold on to glimmers of hope sometimes but i think i, I think I'm, I'm with you on this on this realism posi- position and that we've got that and it's it what what's really interesting is that this technology can make a massive difference and yep. rather than fighting against it it's it's this how do we how do we use it for good um and and it's it, it's been fantastic listening to you tonight don and, and and following the stuff that you've been doing this idea of technology uh, and and particularly around ai has got can can can, can genuinely as as a possibility and the potential to change the world and to change the the people who need it most um and, and move there so thanks thanks for all the work you've done thanks for 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 uh blazing a trail and continuing to do that and thanks for your time you. this evening as you've uh as you've unpacked that stuff and I, I i don't see it as pessimistic i see it as somebody who's who's actually saying this is this is the position we're in let's 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 talk what needs to be said so thank you again for tonight yeah i think just one thing i'd just like to add listening to what you were saying there ben is on the on the really optimistic side I'll be in Africa this year in Senegal and in South Africa talking about all the AI stuff. And I've been going to Africa quite a lot, you know, the last decade or so. And for the first time, I feel I'm going there with some hope because you have Starlink, which means no blind spot internet access, about 5G level, deliverable anywhere on the planet at a reasonable cost. First time Africa, you can be anywhere in Africa now and get Starlink. The second thing is AI, this powerful online learning thing that doesn't replace teachers, but is sort of takes a load of the load off because they, they have a big problem just finding and training teachers there. I feel for the first time, and also the fact that these tools we've been talking about from Google onwards and ChatGTP are actually free. <laughs> it's just mind-blowing to imagine that something like this is absolutely free. So I think if we get that free, free from the tyranny of time, location, the infrastructure, really powerful learning environments, then teachers will not be dispensed with, but we can do much more with our skills. And that's what I feel optimistic about. And But we have to think big. We have to think global, we, you know, not national. And that's why I admire these people who like open AI. You know, you listen to Sam Altman. He says, no, I want to change the whole globe here. This isn't, we're not mucking around here. This is not here. It's not a US thing. This is about changing the entire future. And that's why I'm looking to those people for solace on this, because I think they stand a chance. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, Don, it's been great to have you on um, and been wanting to have this chat for a while. So thank you for joining us. And it, no it, quite, a, quite a relevant time as well, um, as, as all this kind of kicks off in the world, yeah. starts to pay attention. Um, yeah, it's it's been fantastic to have you. And we will be releasing this um, on Saturday uh, right. as exclusive access to, for those who are subscribed to our newsletter. Um, so if you aren't subscribed, if you go to newsletter.edufuturist.com, you can subscribe okay. there. Um, and yeah, I'm, I'm more telling the listeners rather than yourself there, Don. Yeah. <laughs> I'll be wearing my tin hat when it was released. <laughs> Feel free. We'd love to have you subscribed. <laughs> um, no, I'd really address Sorry, you brought a lot of political stuff out of me today. I don't know what mood I was. must have been in some weird mood or something. But the older I get, the more... Funnily enough, the older a lot of people get, the more sort of right wing they become or more 
like apolitical. I'm going the opposite way. I'm I'm getting I'm getting <laughs> I'm getting militant and angry. <laughs> 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 not at all, not at all. It's, no, it's a pleasure speaking to you guys, and uh, keep on doing the stuff you're doing. I see the stuff you're doing on Twitter. This sounds like a great. Um, I know it's a good podcast because you you get you've got a broad church. You know, you're listening to all sorts of people, and that's what it should be. You know, just uh, get the ideas out there. You know, keep keep it flowing. Yeah, thanks, Don. Appreciate it. Take care. Cheers. <laughs>